This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. Russia's invasion into Ukraine is now entering its second week, and the conflict is getting bloodier and bloodier, and lives are being lost. So I think that whatever it takes to end this war is what leaders should be pursuing. Now, what I'm thankful for is the fact that communication between Ukraine and Russia has not been severed, which is very good. And the question is, what is it going to take to get Russia to end their assault on Ukraine? Because they are the aggressors in this instance, obviously. They chose to invade Ukraine which did not provoke them, so what's it going to take to get them to stop? Well, according to Russia, they have a list of three demands, and they're claiming that they would end the war if these demands are met by Ukraine. So as Jake Johnson of Common Dreams explains, the Kremlin said Monday that Russia's deadly assault on Ukraine would end in a moment if the country's leadership agrees to a series of demands including a firm commitment to not join NATO and formal recognition of two breakaway regions of eastern Ukraine as independent states. Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov outlined Russia's demands in a phone interview with Reuters ahead of a third round of negotiations between Russian and Ukrainian diplomats on Monday as the civilian death toll from the invasion continues to mount and the refugee crisis worsens. In addition to diplomatic talks in Belarus, the Russian and Ukrainian foreign ministers are set to meet in person in Turkey on Monday, the highest level meeting between the two nations since Russia's assault began late last month. They should make amendments to the constitution according to which Ukraine would reject any aims to enter any bloc, Peskov told Reuters on Monday, reiterating a long-standing Moscow demand. We have also spoken about how they should recognize that Crimea is Russian territory and that they need to recognize that Donetsk and Lugansk are independent states. And that's it. It will stop in a moment. Peskov added that Russia is finishing the demilitarization of Ukraine, but denied it is seeking to seize Ukrainian territory or oust the country's national leadership. Ukraine is an independent state that will live as it wants, but under conditions of neutrality, said Peskov. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack here. First and foremost, Russia is saying this, but the problem is that their word is shit. They also said that they wouldn't invade Ukraine, but here we are now. So trusting Russia, not necessarily a smart thing. That's first and foremost, because in the event Zelensky actually agreed to these demands, what assurances would he have that Russia would honor their word here? I, I mean, if, if he says, OK, Crimea is part of Russia and these two regions are now independent cr countries and then Russia doesn't withdraw, then what? So there's that. But it seems as if Zelensky would not be open to all of these demands. Some of it, yes, but not all of it, reportedly. So the Washington Post reported that while Ukraine is open to neutrality, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky has ruled out an agreement that would compromise the country's sovereignty and territorial integrity. 
Now, uh, two questions that we have to consider. First and foremost, uh, why is the independence of these two particular regions important to Russia? And how does that make Vladimir Putin and Russia better off than before they invaded? What's the difference here? Now, to answer that latter question, it seemingly doesn't really make them better off, but maybe it's a way for Putin to kind of save face. He probably wanted to seize Ukraine entirely, hence the invasion of the entire country. But after Ukrainian forces resisted Russia more aggressively than they perhaps expected, well, this is Putin's way of kind of taking an optical win before he gets a definitive loss. And also, the sanctions are absolutely devastating to Russia, and they are crippling the Russian economy. Now, Russia reportedly can't maintain a sustained presence in Ukraine, at least at the current state of severity. So some experts with knowledge of the area are saying that they kind of expect Putin to begin looking for an exit and consolidate the gains that he's made while he still can before it gets worse for him, the economy, and overall the situation with respect to the invasion. Now, as for why the independence of these two regions is important to Putin, well, I think that it's reasonable to deduce that if he can't have Ukraine, it's seemingly very difficult for him to actually take Ukraine, much harder than he expected, but if he can't have Ukraine, then these two regions having independence, being aligned with Russia, is the next best thing. And that's evident when you look at this video of the territory, the region itself, uh, as explained by CNN in a surprisingly informative segment. Take a look. To better understand the tensions between NATO and Russia over Ukraine, it's worth a glance at history and a good look at a map. In the Cold War, Europe was split more or less in two. The NATO countries in the West, Warsaw Pact under Moscow's dominance in the East. But post-Cold War, country after country wanted to join NATO, and it's moved up to Russia's borders. To understand why Russia feels nervous about that, a topographical map is useful. There's a mountain range running across Europe, the Carpathian Mountains. Now from the Baltic Sea here to where the Carpathians start there, this is flat ground. And through that flat ground have come Napoleon and the French, Hitler and the Germans and many others who've invaded Russia from that direction. And that makes Russia very nervous. Therefore, it seeks to either plug that gap by occupying it, or if not, where the ground opens up into flat ground, it wants to, at the very least, dominate it. In 2014, its reaction was to occupy and then annex Crimea, part of Ukraine, and its warm water port of Sebastopol, which gives the Russian fleet access out of the Black Sea into the Mediterranean, and from there onto the great ocean lanes of the world. It also fomented civil war in the Donbass region in order to create a small mini-buffer zone. To understand Russia's strategy towards Ukraine, it's not just about the military aspects and the political aspects. It's important to understand the place that Ukraine has in Russia's hearts or in its psychology. Russian culture began in Kiev, and it's where what eventually became Russia was founded. I mean, it moved eastwards across to Moscow, but they still know in their collective imagination that the root of their culture is in the heart of Ukraine. And Putin wrote an essay pretty much about this in which he doesn't recognize these lines on the map, these borders, because as far as he's concerned, Ukraine is part of Mother Russia. And that is a psychology that goes quite deep in, into the Russian collective memory. 
Large parts of the country are Russian-speaking, there's the Slavic connection, and there's also the fact that many people are Russian Orthodox in their religious belief. So while, of course, great power politics and Russia's position vis-a-vis -vis Western Europe, NATO, the Americans, and all the rest of it comes into this, this is from the heart, and it actually does play a role in Russian thinking. So you can see how these demands that Putin is making now kind of satisfies that way of thinking that was described in the video. It kind of puts these two regions that would potentially formally have been Ukraine, assuming that Zelensky accepts this deal, closer to Russia and also creates a bit of a strategic buffer as Crimea does. So, you know, if he can't have Ukraine, this is seemingly the next best thing for Putin, assuming he actually would honor his end of the deal because he could be bluffing. Again, he claimed this was not going to happen in the first place, so it's really difficult to take anything that Russia says seriously since they have been proven to be liars. But I don't think it's unreasonable to assume that Putin wants to find some way out given that this is one, hurting his economy, and two, leading to people in his own country rising up against him. Thousands of people have been arrested for protesting the invasion of Ukraine, so it's not making him any new friends. But then again, he kind of should have anticipated this in the first place. I mean, invading Ukraine wasn't in his best interest. I mean, sure, he might think that Ukraine should be part of Russia and have that mentality and, and want to create a sort of buffer zone between the West and Russia. But still, doing this makes matters worse. He's essentially driving these other countries into the arms of NATO by doing this. If you didn't want NATO to increase its presence, well, you're, you're having the opposite effect. So it's hard to say what's going to take place, but this is the demands here. That's what I believe is the thinking. I kind of think that Putin is getting a little bit desperate here because i mean there were reports after russia had invaded that kiev would fall relatively quickly given the scale of the assault into ukraine but that hasn't happened and it's kind of been a little bit of a debacle for putin and to boot his economy is in shambles so what do you do well if you're a reasonable person you kind of look for an out and you try to you know the biggest W that you can now, which is small, but he's trying to leave with something so that way all of this wasn't for nothing. So whether or not all of this leads to peace, I'm not sure, but I am happy that talks are continuing and I hope it ends soon. White House Chief of Staff Ronald Klain appeared on an episode of the Pod Save America podcast, and he was asked about student debt. Now, what he said here was very interesting and uncharacteristically reasonable for the Biden administration. Take a look. The president's going to uh, look at what we should do on student debt uh, before uh, uh, the pause expires or he'll extend the pause. Joe Biden right now is the only president in history where no one's paid on their student loans for the entirety of his presidency. And so the question of whether or not there's some executive action, student debt forgiveness, uh, when the payments res resume uh, is a decision we're gonna take before the payments resume. Uh, right now, um, people aren't, ha aren't having to pay on their loans. And, um, and so I think dealing with the executive branch question, what we should do about that, what his powers are, how much we should do on that, that's something we're gonna deal with later on. That sounded very, interesting. Now, before we say anything further, temper your expectations because there's a couple of red flags with what he's saying there that lead me to believe that this isn't going to be the full student debt cancellation that we've all been demanding for 
years now. Uh, but let, let's go through what he said here. So he says, possibly before the pause expires, they're looking at extending the pause. At a minimum, I do think that it's reasonable to deduce that we will see another extension of the uh, pause on student debt repayment, which that's that's good news, right? So some cause for hopium. But what I really want to know is what's the verdict when it comes to student debt cancellation? None of us are really expecting this from Joe Biden, even if we are demanding it, but it's nice to kind of get a little bit of an update. Well, Ron Klain says, so the question of whether or not there's some executive action on student debt forgiveness when the repayments, uh, when the payments resume is a decision we're going to take before the payments resume. And so I think dealing with the executive branch question, what we should do about that, what his powers are, and how much we should do on that, there's something we're going to deal with later on. So what he just gave us was a timeline. Before May 1st, which is the date that payments are currently set to resume for student loans, they will determine whether or not Biden will take executive action and how much. Um, so there's a couple of things working in our favor. Ultimately, I, I'll tell you what my expectations are. They're not very high, just to kind of be clear. But we have a couple of things working in our favor. First and foremost, you just saw the White House chief of staff brag about how Biden is the only president in history where nobody has had to make payments on their student loans. That's something that they are saying because they know that that's good and popular. Therefore, they want to give themselves a little bit of ammunition, something to brag about going into the midterms, and they presumably want to keep this up, right? So they know at least at the very, very minimum, that allowing people to have a little bit more room to breathe, having this break from student loans is popular. So that's important. So if it is the case that Biden chooses to sign an executive order canceling student debt, as his chief of staff, Ronald Klain, hinted that he might possibly do, the question is how much? What's the number? Um, I would expect no more than $10,000. Do not get your hopes up. Um, if he cancels 50000 that would be very, very unlikely. But I mean, this is what the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, along with a lot of lawmakers, are calling in on him to do. But on the campaign trail, he said very explicitly he's not going to cancel that much. He said $10,000. Now, he said more vague things about student forgiveness on the campaign trail. So you can take from that what you want. But this is Joe Biden. So if he's going to cancel anything via executive order, well, I wouldn't expect more than 10000 I certainly wouldn't expect full cancellation. If he proves me wrong, I would be more than happy to say that I was wrong and he was right here. Good on him. But I just think that that's unlikely. A couple of things that are working against us here, and this is very cynical, but his approval rating is starting to rebound following the State of the Union and following his approval of the way that he's handling the Russian invasion into Ukraine. So with that in mind, he may not necessarily feel the pressure to do something with respect to student loan repayments, because if his approval rating is going up, then, you know, why bother? It's a Democrat. So, of course, we should always expect less than the bare minimum. But on top of that, this administration, I mean, we need to remind you who they are. As Insider reminds all of us, Biden's Department of Education continues to fight student loan borrowers who are fighting to discharge their student loans in court via bankruptcy. For example, after 35-year-old Ryan Wolfson successfully proved in court his student loans proved an undue hardship, well, the Department of Education stepped in to appeal the case. Now, they subsequently withdrew their appeal following backlash once this story became public, but still it kind of gives you a sense of 
what they're trying to do, where their priorities lie. They also rejected a 77-year-old nurse's attempt to discharge her student debt after she served nearly two decades at a public hospital. Now, let me remind you that if you've dedicated your life to public service for two decades, your student debt is supposed to be forgiven. Public service is one avenue to loan forgiveness. This is what the Democrats have bragged about. But when it comes to what they're doing in court or when people make these appeals to have their student debt discharged, they're fighting them. So this is who the administration is. We hear that from Ronald Klain, and it's it's easy to get your hopes up and feel a little bit of hopium, but let's temper our expectations and remember who we're, we're dealing with here. We're dealing with Joe Biden. The buck stops with him. So his chief of staff can say one thing, but this is the guy ultimately who made it more difficult for all of us to discharge our student debt in the first place, thanks to his bankruptcy bill. So I would not expect him to do anything. Even when it comes to $10,000, I'm not getting my hopes up with that. Would it be lovely? Yes. Would I absolutely sing his praises if he chose to sign an executive order canceling all student debt? Without question. Is he going to do that, though? Not necessarily. Uh, but here's one thing that we do have going in our favor, or working in our favor, I should say, going into the future. The negative economic impact argument is now officially moot because nobody has made payments on their student loans for quite some time. And guess what? There's no evidence that it has negatively impacted the economy. So this fear-mongering that we heard previously about how canceling student debt would lead to some sort of an economic crisis is bullshit. I mean, the evidence is right in front of us, right? So that's one really important thing that we have in the future. And I also just want you all to save that video that we just watched of Ron Klain so that way we can throw it in Biden's face in the future or in the Democratic Party's face in the future because they've kind of been dangling student debt forgiveness or some sort of forgiveness or just easing up our pain in front of our faces for a while now. So this is all building up to something, right? Some sort of a solution. So if they don't do anything about this, then we can throw this in their face and say, well, you all keep hinting at this and you keep telling us to vote for you and yet nothing is being accomplished. Now they might just say, well, look, you haven't made payments under us, so that's your relief. You're welcome. Or they might actually take it a step further and cancel at least some student debt. I don't know. But what we just, just saw right there was significant. That is the White House chief of staff explicitly, publicly saying that we're looking at a potential executive order to cancel student debt. Not saying how much, not saying if we're even going to do it. We may just extend the pause on repayments. But still, that's significant. And... It's something that you all need to keep in mind. So when the Democrats start to waver, again, throw it in their faces. I mean, whatever we can do to put pressure on him. But I will say I've been pretty optimistic just because there's been such a sustained amount of pressure on Joe Biden from other lawmakers, progressives, and even senators like Chuck Schumer. I mean, uh, he's the last person that you'd expect to have any progressive bone in his body whatsoever, but he's been relatively consistent here. And I previously thought that maybe he was trying to thwart off some sort of a primary challenge from a progressive opponent, but he's pretty consistent. So credit where it's due, he's exerting pressure. And even if, you know, he doesn't really mean it and this is all just rhetoric, that still is important. It still moves the Overton window in our direction. So, you know, it's a positive development here to hear uh, White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain say that, but don't get your hopes up because you're likely going to be disappointed if you do, but still something to keep in mind because that's not a small thing to see that, to hear him say, yeah, we're looking at executive action. That's pretty substantial. So 
Take from it what you will, but I'm not gonna get my hopes up for one. On Sunday, Joe Manchin appeared on Meet the Press with Chuck Todd, and he seemingly expressed frustration with the Biden administration over their unwillingness to support a Ukrainian no-fly zone, i.e. support war with Russia, because that's exactly what that would lead to. And he even said that it was wrong to rule out a no-fly zone. So what he says here is completely reckless and insane. Nonetheless, we'll listen to what he has to say, and then I will tell you why what he's saying is madness when we come back. Look, you were on this Zoom yeah. with President Zelensky right. yesterday. Before I get into the details, just, you know, what was that like with him? What, 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 what did he say to you guys? It was so surreal. But to have a person there in the front, on the front lines, taking mortars every day and basically seeing his people being slaughtered and willing to withstand all of this and fight back. And all he asked for was basically just help me. I'll fight my own fight. Just give me the tools to do it. Mm -hmm. And for us to hesitate or anyone to hesitate in the free world is wrong. And he said that. He said, listen, if Ukraine falls, then Europe may fall. Where do you want to stop? So what does that mean for you? Are you right now... Would you support a no-fly zone? Support, Would you support I, doing this, which could trigger a wider I conflict? understand that, but right now you don't signal to your to the nemesis of Putin. This is a Putin's war. This is not the Russian people's war. This is Putin's war and his quest for whatever it may be. But to take anything off the table thinking we might not be able to use things because we've already taken them off the table is wrong. I would take nothing off the table, but I would let be very clear that we're going to support the Ukrainian people, the Ukrainian president and this government every way humanly possible. Zelensky was very clear. He says, we don't need you to fight our fight. We don't need you to fly our planes or fly your planes into our war zone. Mm -hmm. We need the planes that we can fly ourselves, and we have them on the border. Right. You heard Secretary, yes. Secretary Blinken. That deal seems to be I at think least it's in moving. motion. I hope right? it's very The trading quickly, of jets yeah. with the Poles in particular. Absolutely. Correct? We need to backfill that. All right. Okay. Let me be very clear here. When somebody in the media asks a politician if they support a no-fly zone over Ukraine, that's just the synonym for war with Russia at this point. And if we were to directly confront Russia by shooting down one of their planes, that's what would be entailed with the no-fly zone, that would immediately trigger World War III. So this isn't some casual thing that we're talking about here. I don't think that media pundits should just flippantly talk about war with Russia by coding it in this more innocuous language, ostensibly innocuous language called no-fly zone. Just say it's a war with Russia. Just ask if you support war with Russia because that's exactly what that is. And it's frustrating to see people in media mess this up time and again. And thankfully, Chuck Todd Unlike other pundits, he actually implied, well, this could pull us into, you know, a greater conflict there, which it definitely would, obviously, but at least he implied that it's more substantial than just, oh, you can't fly here. No, that means we directly confront Russia by shooting down their planes. And according to Joe Manchin, he wouldn't rule that out. He would not rule out war with Russia. He also said that um, you don't signal that you're not open to a no-fly zone to the enemy because that would be bad. We want the enemy with nuclear weapons to think that we're crazy and we would be willing to shoot down their planes and trigger World War III. Joe Manchin is a fucking moron and him saying that there proves that he's more mad than any of us imagined. But if you're not convinced with what I'm saying about a no-fly zone, 
Let me break it down. We just covered this article last week on the program, but I'm going to read it again just because it's so important here. As Zach Bochamp of Vox explains, as the war in Ukraine gets bloodier, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky has repeatedly urged members of the NATO alliance to close the skies. This appears to be a request for a no-fly zone, deploying NATO aircraft to Ukrainian airspace in order to block Russia from using its airspace in support of the invasion. This is a catastrophic idea, stripped of Kant, the U.S. announcing a no-fly zone in Ukraine would be an American declaration of war on Russia, the first major conflict between the two nations that, put together, control 90% of the world's nuclear weapons. A no-fly zone is not a magical umbrella that prevents planes flying in a given area. It's a decision to shoot at planes that fly in a given area, explains Olga Olaker, the International Crisis Group's director for Europe and Central Asia. To put in a no-fly zone is to go to war. The Biden administration appears to recognize the risk. In a Thursday press conference, President Biden categorically ruled out direct U.S. intervention in Ukraine. Quote, our forces are not and will not be engaged in the conflict with Russia and Ukraine. This effectively takes any meaningful no-fly zone off the table, and there is no sign the president will change his mind. Now, this article was published at the end of February, but since then, the Biden administration has been pressed by members of the media to support a no-fly zone, or they've asked and heavily implied that this is something that he should be doing, but thankfully, they've resisted calls for an escalation. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki last week said, no, this is a terrible idea because this means a direct confrontation between the United States and Russia, between NATO and Russia. And I just feel like people in the Senate should get this. Joe Manchin should understand what he's calling for. To say, I wouldn't take this off the table means you are signaling to Russia that we would consider going to war with them. This is a nuclear-armed country. We don't need to pretend to be tough for the sake of being tough. We need to be very clear and deliberate with the things that we say and not be reckless. But that's what Joe, Biden, uh, Joe Manchin is doing. And thankfully, he's not the president. Joe Biden is. And Joe Biden is doing the correct thing here. And I commend him for resisting calls to go to war with Russia because that's insane. Again, they have nukes as do we, would be pretty devastating for the species if this were, in fact, to take place. And Joe Manchin isn't the only idiot in the Senate to say something incredibly reckless. Lindsey Graham, on either Friday or Saturday, called for Putin's assassination, which to have a sitting U.S. senator say this publicly, I mean, who knows how the Kremlin interpreted that? I don't know if they take Lindsey Graham that seriously, but they need to be watching everything that they say currently. You're a member of the U.S. Senate. When you call for war with Russia, that's not some small thing. It's not like you're a regular citizen. You have an immense amount of power. So for people like Manchin to say this or Lindsey Graham to say Putin should be assassinated, I mean, this is all possibly seen as a sign of aggression from Putin. And we don't want to give them any reason to escalate because, again, they have nukes and so do we. And as a species, we all have a common interest to want to survive. So unless Joe Manchin wants to go to war himself, wants to go join Ukraine if he cares that much, or maybe send his son or his daughter who was engaged in price fixing when she uh, was the CEO of a pharmaceutical company, unless you all want to go and fight in Ukraine, send his children to go die, shut the fuck up. Because world war is something that is absolutely necessary to avoid at all costs, given the stakes, given that there are nuclear weapons between both countries. And I've just got to point this out. I mean, he's talking about war with Russia here and advocating for war with Russia, or at least, to be fair to him, not ruling war with Russia 
out, not taking it off the table, except how much would that cost? Let me remind you what he said in response to the $3.5 trillion price tag for Build Back Better when he was on Meet the Press back in September when negotiations were ongoing. There's not a rush to do that right now. We don't have an urgency. Don't you think we ought to debate a little bit more, talk about it and see what we've got out there? So you're not against this? You could support this three and a half trillion dollar no, plan. I cannot support three and a half trillion. Okay, okay. so that now, is a. Okay. All right, now yeah. we're getting to Brad. It, it, it is not a time issue. It really is a cost issue. When we don't have. Are you a hard no? On the three point five? Yes. yes. Okay. So he was a hard no on spending three point five trillion dollars to help people in the United States, but when it comes to war with Russia. He's not going to take that off the table. Does he have any estimate as to how much that will cost? Do we have a CBO score as to how much war with Russia will cost? Assuming we go to war with Russia and we survive a nuclear apocalypse, how much would that cost to rebuild society and humanity? This is a fucking moron. I mean, Joe Manchin, I, I get that he has a limited amount of functioning brain cells still left in his body. But his handler should be explaining to him, don't openly call for war or keep war on the table when you do interviews because people hear this, Russia hears this, and this can be seen as provocation. I just wish that the members of the media who ask this question would stop coding war with Russia in this seemingly innocuous language. No fly zone. Just call it war with Russia. Just call it direct confrontation with Russia because that's what it is. And characterizing it as anything but that is absolutely reckless. I'll say it again, to institute a no-fly zone is tantamount to a declaration of war with Russia. This is something that we absolutely cannot and will never support. So I always try to avoid hyperbole when speculating about the motivations of particular lawmakers when their actions are seemingly unexplainable. But when it comes to this particular story, I don't know what other word to use than evil, because what Mitch McConnell is doing here is soulless, it's cruel, and I'm sorry, it's just plain evil. So as Jake Johnson of Common Dreams explains, federal waivers that have given U.S. schools the flexibility to offer universal free lunches throughout the pandemic are at risk of ending as Senate Republicans, led by Mitch McConnell, stonewall a proposed extension of the relief measures potentially depriving millions of children of no-cost meals in the coming months. Politico reported Monday that McConnell, the Senate minority leader, is forcefully opposing a provision to extend the federal school lunch waivers as part of an omnibus government funding package that Congress must pass by midnight Friday to avert a shutdown. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has estimated that the average school district will face a 40% cut in federal reimbursements for meals if Congress allows the waivers first approved in March 2020 and extended thereafter to lapse. The USDA's authority to extend the school meal waivers further is currently set to expire at the end of June. Research shows that the school meal waivers in concert with other federal relief programs have helped alleviate costs for low-income families during the pandemic and reduce hunger among poor children, a widespread problem in the United States. So for whatever reason, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is forcefully opposing an extension of a program that prevents children from skipping meals and potentially going hungry. Now, if you think that this wasn't a problem, it is a problem, and it's a problem that very much was exacerbated due to the pandemic that, believe it or not, is still going on, even if currently we're in a good position where cases and deaths 
are down. So looking at the 2021 report released by Feeding America, it shows specifically the way that the pandemic has made this issue worse. And in 2021, they projected that one in eight people or 42 million Americans, 13 million of which are children, may experience food insecurity. Now we'll have to wait to see the actual data and the numbers, but this was their projection as of last year. And those at risk of food insecurity saw their situations deteriorate due to poverty and unemployment because of the pandemic specifically. And this is an issue predictably that affects indigenous, black and Latinos disproportionately. So they will be worse off as a result of this program ending if that is indeed what happens. And of course, single parent households are at greater risk of food insecurity because they only have a single income to go off of as opposed to double parent households where they have potentially two sources of income. So overall, the question is, why? Why would you be against this? I get that Republicans don't care about the poor. They don't care if people are suffering in this country. But this is something that's really just an easy thing that members of Congress can do to alleviate suffering. And Mitch McConnell is leading Republicans to stonewall this effort. It's just this is incredibly seemingly reductionist, but it's just evil. He's just doing this to be evil because he's a bad person. And maybe he's trying to use people who are food insecure as a bargaining chip. I'm not sure, but either way, this is gross. So let's get to some reactions. 2022 congressional candidate Nina Turner says this is evil, evil. Kyle Kalinske writes, comic book villain shit. Totally agree there. U.S. Senate candidate from Kentucky, actually. Charles Booker writes, Mitch McConnell never needed free lunch to get a hot meal at school. He never needed food stamps to survive. Nearly half of Kentucky's children live in households below 200% of the federal poverty line. I was one of them. He doesn't see us. And it's true that Mitch McConnell doesn't see you because he doesn't have to think about you. He never has to think about food insecurity or poverty in general because he and his wife are very grotesquely wealthy. Forbes estimates that him and his wife are worth anywhere between 20 to 75 million dollars. That is insane. So part of it is ignorance and privilege and I'm sorry but part of it it has to be just pure evil and I love how nobody is surprised by this, right? Everybody sees this news and we react in a way that is it's you know we're expressing disgust but nobody thinks wow, this is certainly uncharacteristic for Mitch McConnell. It's par for the course for him. We expect him to do things that are just unimaginably cruel that normal human beings with hearts wouldn't want to do. Most people, I, I think, are good people, and they don't want to see people suffer in the United States where we don't have to let that happen, right? But he just doesn't care. He wants it to happen. I mean, as Cal said, comic book villain shit. He likes being the bad guy. To him, it's some sort of a benefit. But I mean, if you are a Republican Party voter, why are you still voting for this party? Why do you support a party that has time and again proven that they are targeting children for political purposes. It's not just this here, where Mitch McConnell is making children who are already food insecure more food insecure. They're also going after LGBTQ plus children in various states. In Texas, they're claiming that a family who loves their trans child who sought out gender affirming care is child abusers and they're going to investigate them. In Florida, they may very well pass the don't say gay law. Uh, in fact, it's passed the Senate, but it's just a matter of whether or not Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, will sign that into law. So constantly they target children and they purport to be the family values party when they just they don't care about children. They, they've demonstrated that time and again. So why do you keep voting for this party that is deliberately attacking 
families for purposes of political expediency. Why support them? Don't you feel bad yourself voting for this? I mean, I don't like to blame voters oftentimes, but at some point you've got to ask yourself, why do you continue to support a party that is pure evil going out of their way time and again to do things that hurts families in America? Why support this? Because of some issue, the deficit, uh, the debt, I don't know, critical race theory, some manufactured culture war issue that you believe is more salient than feeding children? Why support this? At some point, you've got to take responsibility as a voter. This is your party, Republicans, so own it. Don't pretend to be, you know, a Christian. Don't pretend to be, you know, the party of family values when you keep voting for shit like this. We just watched thousands of Americans in the United States on Michigan Avenue in Chicago march in support of a no-fly zone over Ukraine. How many of them do you think would change their mind if they actually knew what a no-fly zone entailed? How many of them are aware of the fact that they are calling for the Biden administration to functionally declare war on Russia? It's something that we have to ask ourselves as popular support for a no-fly zone increases. And this wasn't some isolated incident. At New York's Guggenheim Museum, artists symbolized the need for a no-fly zone over Ukraine by flying paper airplanes from all floors of said museum. And I think that this sentiment will increase because the so-called foreign policy elite in the United States are ramping up calls for a no-fly zone over Ukraine. More than two dozen so-called experts on foreign policy signed an open letter to the Biden administration encouraging him to enact a, quote, limited no-fly zone. And as they continue to push this, I think the American people will see that and respond by also supporting what they believe is the humane thing to do. I mean, these are not bad people. We saw the signs, protect the skies, save lives. They don't understand. They think that this is going to lead to more people being protected when in actuality, this will make the conflict exponentially greater to unimaginable levels. Now, this, in my opinion, is a complete failure of the media. They either wittingly or unwittingly managed to manufacture consent for war with Russia. I don't know how many pundits even know what a no-fly zone entails, but either way, even if they do, they have failed to adequately explain this to the American people. And that's evident when you look at polls. So a majority of Americans, a large majority of Americans from both parties support a no-fly zone, but simultaneously, they don't want war with Russia. So Reuters reports some 74% of Americans, including solid majorities of Republicans and Democrats, said the United States and its allies in the North Atlantic Treaty Organization should impose a no-fly zone in Ukraine, the poll found. It was not clear if respondents who supported a no-fly zone were fully aware of the risk of conflict, and majorities opposed the idea of sending American troops to Ukraine or conducting airstrikes to support the Ukrainian army. So the disconnect here is evident. Americans don't want war with Russia. They don't want boots on the ground, and they don't want to support the Ukrainian army with airstrikes because they know what that would entail. That means that you'd be shooting at Russians from American planes, but yet they at the same time support a no-fly zone. 
it's apparent that they don't know what a no-fly zone is. And perhaps not all of them are ignorant, right? Maybe the people who we marched, some of them actually know that there is a risk. But most Americans, I think, don't actually know. And this is because the media has failed to educate them. Now, Michael McFaul, the former U.S. ambassador to Russia, was a guest on MSNBC. And thankfully, he said what people desperately needed to hear. So he responded to the calls from so-called foreign policy experts to enact a limited no-fly zone. And he said, quite frankly, stop calling it a no-fly zone. We need to stop calling it this. It is war. That's what it is. And people need to understand this. So I hope that the American people hear this message. And more importantly, I hope that what he says reverberates in the media sphere because they have failed to educate the American people. Take a look at what he says, because this is really, really important. Uh, I think a no-fly zone is is the wrong move. I support the president of the United States on that. Um, uh, let's just get rid of this euphemism, no-fly zone. Let's call it for what it is, is war. Uh, if we try to uh, implement a no-fly zone, that means that an American pilot has to shoot down a Russian pilot. And if we do that, that's a declaration of war. Uh, and Vladimir Putin has been very clear that that's the way he sees it. And if we're prepared to do that, if the American people want to go to war with Russia, I think it would be a mistake. But if we're prepared to do it, then we should have a vote in the US Congress because the Congress is supposed to declare war. Um, that's what we need to do first. We should stop calling it a no-fly zone and we should start calling it declaration against uh, Russia to go to war. And I just don't think that's the right thing to do right now. Everything short of that, I support 100%. Every weapon system on the planet that we can send to them, but I do not think it's smart to send American soldiers uh, to fight Putin soldiers. What about this idea of a limited no-fly zone, one that protects humanitarian routes? I, again, those are my friends that, that put that letter out. I chose not to sign that letter, I'll tell you very honestly. I've signed other ones with them. Uh, I, I chose not to do this now. If you could get a guarantee uh, blessed by the United Nations with Russia and Ukraine all together, that we all recognize those corridors as being free and safe, then we should consider it. But we haven't done that yet. And yeah. so I just think it's, I don't think we should go to war with Russia right now. Everything else, yes. I'm not prepared to go there to that level uh, along with my colleagues. He is absolutely right about that. When you call it a no-fly zone, you sanitize it. You strip the significance away from that policy. This means we are going to deliberately shoot down Russian planes. We'll see a direct confrontation between the U.S. military and the Russian military. That is World War III. So I want to be very clear here. When I talk about the ignorance of the American people, I am not saying that they're bad. I think that these are really good-hearted people. I think that they actually believe that a no-fly zone is the good thing because they hear on mainstream media that that's what's needed to actually aid the Ukrainian army. But they don't understand that that is a declaration of war on Russia. Russia has stated that they'd see that as a declaration of war, and that's what it would be. We're directly engaging Russia. This isn't just the Ukraine-Russia war. This becomes the Russia-US war. This becomes World War III. 
and Americans have to understand what they're calling for because it's incredibly dangerous because you kind of create this feedback loop where Americans begin to hear more and more about a Ukrainian no-fly zone and they think this is the humanitarian solution and then they in turn pressure lawmakers to support a no-fly zone who then pressure Biden to support a no-fly zone. Now, thankfully, the Biden administration has been adamant about not enacting a no-fly zone over Ukraine because they know what this would entail. They know that that's World War III and they do not want a direct confrontation with Russia, thankfully so. But if we don't educate people, then we end up charting on dangerous territory here where you have large, large amounts of people, a majority of Americans saying we should do war with Russia when they don't want war with Russia. But what they're saying is tantamount to war with Russia or tantamount to supporting a war with Russia. So the mainstream media, by dimwittedness or disingenuity, have managed to get the American people to support World War III and they don't even know that they support World War III. So pundits have got to do better. When it comes to foreign policy, they can't just speak flippantly about a no-fly zone. You have to describe in great detail what this entails and how this would lead to World War III. You can't just say that over and over again and talk about this as if it's some good solution when people don't even know what you're talking about. They're glued to their televisions currently because they're concerned with this conflict and they're getting information and they don't even really understand what information they're receiving, but they just hear this is a potential life-saving solution for Ukrainians, not knowing this is going to lead to potential nuclear warfare. So the media cannot continue to fail here, and I hope that Michael McFaul's me message resonates because people have got to hear this. You can't just willy-nilly call for something as huge as World War III. Last year, the Supreme Court allowed Texas' six-week ban on abortion to go into effect, and this year, relatively soon actually, we might see them overturn Roe v. Wade entirely. Now, conservatives who want to ban abortion are probably looking at the preliminary data out of Texas, and they're saying, look, numbers don't lie. Abortions went down after Texas passed their de facto ban. Therefore, we are justified in doing this. We think that abortion should be banned and banning abortion leads to less abortions because the rate of abortion significantly decreased in Texas after this law went into effect. Except, as many of us had argued, you're not going to ban abortions out of existence. You're just going to change the way that women have abortions. Rather than getting safe abortions in their state, they're just going to pursue potentially unsafe, illegal abortions or go to a different state. And two studies are confirming that we were all correct, that women in Texas very much are still getting abortions. Lily Sten of Rogue Rocket explains, initial studies found that abortions in Texas fell by 50% in the months after the state's ban took effect. However, the new data from two groups of researchers at the University of Texas at Austin found that abortions actually dropped at a much lower rate, about 10% when accounting for Texans who went to a clinic out of state or ordered abortion pills online. According to one of the studies for each month between September of 2021, 
when the law took effect and the end of the year, an average of 1,400 Texans sought abortions in one of seven nearby states. That is 12 times the number of people who got out-of-state abortions before the law was put in place. During the same period, an average of 1,100 Texans each month ordered abortion pills online from the overseas service Aid Access. The nonprofit organization connects people seeking abortions with European doctors and Indian pharmacies, which are able to skirt abortion restrictions and send the pills by mail. The number of individuals who sought other means of abortions is likely higher than indicated in the studies because the data only accounts for those who visited 34 of 44 clinics in the seven neighboring states and includes those who may have gone to additional states or crossed the border to Mexico. The research also does not include those who used other methods to get abortions like ordering pills from online pharmacies that have not yet published their sales numbers. This proves that you can't ban abortions out of existence. You can make laws making it more difficult for women to get abortions, but they're still going to get abortions. It'll just change where and how they get abortions. Republicans know this, but what they're doing is throwing red meat to their base. They actually think that banning abortion is going to lead to no abortions, but that's just unrealistic. It's the drug law, but for women's rights, you know, banning drugs isn't going to do anything to actually reduce drug use. It's just going to create this black market for drugs. And we're going to see a similar effect with respect to abortion. I don't know if there's going to be abortion black markets popping up as a result of this, where doctors perform illegal abortions, but certainly we can expect a lot of women to cross state lines to get abortions because there will be states, even if Roe v. Wade is overturned, that do not overturn abortion. The West Coast, California, Oregon, Washington, the East Coast, these states will very much still keep abortion legal. So women might just go to these states to get abortions, and lawmakers in Republican-controlled states are anticipating this, and they're trying to respond to this. So as reporter Kate Smith tweets, a new Missouri bill would prohibit women leaving the state to get an abortion. If this style of legislation is somehow found legal, it would have a huge impact in a post-Roe v. Wade world. In Texas, where Roe might as well not exist, half of the state's abortion patients cross state lines or request abortion pills from Aid Access, an overseas service that sends pills in the mail, while sidestepping U.S. abortion laws. And yes, this is obviously unconstitutional, but so is a six-week abortion ban for now. Ask a Texas abortion patient how those constitutional rights are working out. So banning women from crossing state lines to get abortions is obviously unconstitutional, but let's say some of these states in a post-real world passed uh, these laws and they at least temporarily restricted women from going to a different state to get an abortion. What would be the effect? Well, again, I think we can predict that they're still going to get abortions. They just won't get a safe abortion in a state where it's legal. They will resort to potentially unsafe and illegal abortions in state or order pills from abroad. So the takeaway here is that you're not going to ban abortion out of existence. You are just going to endanger the lives of women who seek out abortions, who can no longer get safe abortions in their home states. And if you are one of these so-called pro-life individuals, then maybe stop being a fucking clown and focus on the issues where life is threatened. Anthropogenic climate change threatens the habitability of this planet. The human species is in danger. Maybe if you're pro-life, you'd focus on that. Maybe all of the military spending 
that we inject into the military industrial complex to wage never-ending wars, maybe that should be your priority. How our country aligns with human rights abusers like Saudi Arabia, who's doing a genocide in Yemen currently. How our tax dollars funds apartheid states like Israel. I mean, if you're pro-life, there's so many things that you can do. Just admit, if you're anti-abortion, you just want to control women. That's what this is about. Because if you're pro-life, there are so many other causes that would actually help save lives that you could be focusing on. But you focus on abortion. Banning it isn't going to get rid of abortions, but yet you still continue to do this. I feel like most people have got to know this, right? So what is this really about? If you're not pro-life in actuality, what is this about? Well, you just want to control women. This is misogyny. This is your end game. This has always been the case. Supposed pro-life people don't give a flying fuck about life. If they did, they would stop doing things that are harmful to human beings. Stop pushing for laws that lead to LGBTQ plus deaths. Opt for basic gun control that would stop mass death events in this country from occurring on a daily fucking basis. Support a single-payer healthcare system so thousands of Americans don't die every single year because they don't have basic access to healthcare. But no, they focus on abortion. Why? Because they just want to control women. That's what this is about. I mean, abortion is a procedure that needs to be done by somebody who's an expert. It can't be done in a back alley by some makeshift abortion doctor who uses a coat hanger. That is what is going to threaten the lives of women. That is what is going to lead to deaths. But yet these dipshits call themselves pro-life as they restrict women's access to health care. It's not pro-life. It's about controlling women. And I wish that all of these pro-life frauds would just admit that. Just admit what you're all about. You want to control women. And that's your agenda. Period. You're not pro-life. This is a pro-death position. Banning abortion is quite literally a pro-death position. And when we start getting reports, if Roe v. Wade is in fact overturned, that uh, women are dying because they're getting unsafe abortions, that blood is on your hands. This is on you. So own it. Own the consequences of your actions. So last week on the program, we talked about how Texas is investigating parents with trans children and treating them as if they are child abusers if they seek out gender-affirming care for their trans children. And there's an update to that story with regard to Texas, but I want to talk about Idaho, who decided to copy that law but somehow found a way to make it even more draconian. Idaho's house just passed HB 675. It passed by a vote of 55 to 13. It would make providing gender-affirming care to trans teens a felony with a life sentence. Worse, it makes leaving the state with your trans teen to move elsewhere and provide them with care a felony as well. In other words, if you are a doctor who provides gender-affirming care to trans teens, which is medically necessary and life-saving, well, you may be charged with a felony if this bill becomes law in Idaho. And if you are a parent who sees these laws and the attempt to criminalize trans existence in this state and you choose to flee the state, well, you might be charged with a felony too. It is absolutely ridiculous and it's just tyrannical. As Ravana put it, this is ridiculously unconstitutional for a variety of reasons, but worse, it's fucking murderous. These state legislatures are trying to legislate trans people out of existence. These laws will kill people. And she's right about that. That's going to be the result. These laws will kill people. If you are not allowing trans youth to get gender-affirming care, which is medically necessary and appropriate for specific ages, 
HRT is appropriate for teens, according to the experts, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Medical Association. If you reject that and you refuse to let them get that care, it increases the likelihood that they may attempt or actually commit suicide. So it's it's gross. And these Republicans know that this is going to be the case. But back to Texas, the state that kind of kicked off this effort to criminalize the existence of trans youth. Um, so an update to the story that we talked about last week. Thankfully, there was a temporary block of the first investigation that we talked about for that family. But I mean, investigations are still taking place. The broader outcome or I guess I don't want to call it a law because it's just a new order from the Texas Attorney General, but it's still in effect and families are still very much being investigated if they have trans children. And one particular family under investigation, it just shows how craven the GOP is, in particular Ken Paxton, the Attorney General of Texas. As Dia Gill of the Daily Beast explains, a family now under investigation in the wake of Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton's February opinion equating gender-affirming medical treatment with child abuse once crossed more intimate paths with the top legal officer. In 2016, when Texas saw protests against attempts to regulate bathroom usage for transgender students, Amber Briggle invited Paxton to her home to have dinner with her eight-year-old transgender son. Briggle recalled to the 19th how Paxton and her son washed up for dinner together. He turns around and looks and says this is nice it's been a while since i had kids this age briggle said but now the briggle family is under investigation for child abuse due to gender-affirming medical care they've provided for their child so far having been interviewed by a child protective services caseworker and undergone a home inspection raising a transgender child in texas has been one long political emergency they said in a statement it always seemed like this state would come now it has arrived so just let that sink in for a moment this family knew that Ken Paxton was a homophobe. And what did they do? They did what they thought would make a difference. They see that he's ignorant, perhaps he's not inherently hateful, so they invited him over to dinner. And there was a moment where he bonded with their transgender son. And now this family is under investigation for child abuse. When he knows this is a loving and caring family. This is not an abusive family, but what he is doing is hurting families like this for political purposes. It's truly just monstrous. It is monstrous. Now, because of this order and opinion from Ken Paxton, one children's hospital in Texas has announced that they will no longer be offering life-saving gender-affirming care to trans youth. And Ken Paxton took to Twitter to gloat about this, saying, glad to hear that today Texas Children's Hospital halted their child abuse procedures. So he's calling this child abuse when he had dinner with a family who had a trans kid. He bonded with their trans son. He broke bread with them. And now he's saying this is child abuse. What a terrible, terrible person. Just awful. Now moving on to Florida, the state Senate just passed its don't say gay bill despite backlash and school walkouts. And now it heads to Governor Ron DeSantis' desk. And the question is, will he sign it or will he do the right thing and veto it? I, for one, don't have very high hopes because when he was asked about the don't say gay bill at a press conference, he snapped at the reporter who dared to ask a question. Does it say that in the bill? Does it say that in the bill? I'm asking you to tell me what's in the bill because you are pushing false narratives. It doesn't matter what critics say. It says it bans classroom instruction on sexual identity and gender orientation. For who? For, for, for grades pre-K through three. I
So five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds, and um, the idea that you wouldn't be honest about that and tell people what it actually says, it's why people don't trust people like you because you peddle false narratives. And so we disabuse you of those narratives. And we're gonna make sure that parents are able to send their kid to kindergarten without having some of this stuff injected into their school curriculum. Yes, because we all know that once your child starts kindergarten, they begin teaching about the fundamentals of homosexuality in week two. It's just ridiculous. And the subtext here is that we have to keep gayness out of schools because this will teach children to be gay when it doesn't work that way. They are the ones politicizing this issue, not children who have gay parents or teachers who happen to be gay. But the point here is to marginalize uh, gay students or students with gay parents. And David Dole made a really great point about this in a recent video. Take a look. I know some people out there are going to watch this and think, oh, grades K to three, what's the big deal? Putting aside the other aspects for a second, grades K to three, what's the big deal? It's, you know, these are adult conversations. These kids shouldn't be talking about sexual orientation in grades K to three. Well, put the shoe on the other foot. So you're okay with kids not being able to discuss their mom and dad? Of course not. That'd be dumb. So why can't kids discuss their mom and mom or dad and dad? Why is it weird to have those conversations? You have to be able to reanalyze how you view the world, what is considered normal to you, and what is normal to other people. So, yes, banning this conversation in grades K-3 to is not a good idea. It is a horrible idea. What you end up doing is you end up ostracizing those students, those younger kids, and then they feel bad about having two moms or two dads and not being able to, uh, be, being able to have these conversations and be open about, about their life. So it is so incredibly discouraging to see that in the year 20 freaking 22, that bills like this are getting through. Yeah, he is exactly right. Now I'm gonna link you to his full video in the description box if you want to watch it. I would highly encourage you to do that because his video actually injected a little bit of hopium into this conversation about how kids in schools in Florida are rising up and speaking out against the Don't Say Gay Bill. But the question is, why now? I mean, it's not like the GOP in this country, you know, in these state legislatures ever took a break from waging an all-out assault on trans and LGBTQ plus youth more broadly speaking, but why are they all doing this right now seemingly in unison? Well, Chase Strangio of the ACLU had a take, and I think that what he says here makes a lot of sense. It's because this is an election year and this is how they throw red meat to the base. What we're seeing nationally is an effort to uh, leverage and weaponize misinformation, particularly about trans people, to mobilize a political base in the lead up to 2022 and 2024. And this is happening in state houses across the country that are deeply gerrymandered, that have shifted incredibly far to the right as a result, uh, in large part, uh, of the Supreme Court's decision in 2013 to gut the Voting Rights Act um, with the Shelby County versus Holder decision. So we can't understand understand this national context without understanding the voter suppression that is happening, without understanding the efforts to restrict access to reproductive health care. There is a dynamic process that is mobilizing state control over people's bodies through voter suppression structures in order to make it harder for people to survive in the lead up to major uh, national elections in 2022, the midterms, and then in 2024 with the presidential election. And that's what we're seeing from GOP leadership, uh, you know, not just in, uh, in Florida, but also in places like uh, um, uh, South Dakota and Texas as well.
So Republicans are doing this because they believe that this will yield some sort of political payoff. They're using LGBTQ plus youth as a political football, waging an all-out assault on the lives of children because they want to win elections. It's just, to say it's monstrous, it feels like it doesn't do what they're doing justice. This is evil. It's morally reprehensible. It's it's gross, right? Now, Mike, mark my words about this. So we've talked about this before because we've heard inklings of this in the past, but if they successfully get Roe v. Wade repealed at the Supreme Court, or overturned, I should say, at the Supreme Court, their next target is going to be Obergefell. They're going to go after marriage equality. So that way, if you live in one of these states controlled by the far right, well, and you've been married for almost, what, uh, eight years now? Too bad. We're going to try to overturn that too, because the goal here ultimately isn't just to, you know, wage this assault on LGBTQ plus youth to win an election. The goal, the ultimate goal for them is to criminalize the existence of LGBTQ plus identities. And since LGBTQ plus adults legally have a lot more rights now, since we've made a lot of progress, well, they have to go out after children and attack children under the guise of protecting children or fighting child abuse. But make no mistake about it, they absolutely want to go after marriage equality next. And they will do what they can to further marginalize and criminalize LGBTQ plus identities and existence. And they do this because they believe that this is ultimately what the base wants. So I hope that the base proves them wrong. And I hope that if you are conservative, but you have a family member who's gay or trans, you stop supporting this party. If you don't like Democrats, fine, just don't vote. But to vote for this party, to affirmatively support this I mean, you're telling your your loved ones who are LGBTQ plus that you don't care about them and that their existence to you is meaningless and that you don't value them. So this is absolutely morally reprehensible and we have to fight this at every step of the way because we can't allow them to undo the progress that we've made with regard to LGBTQ plus rights. I mean, we're never going to stop fighting because this will always be a fight, unfortunately, that we need to have because homophobia will never go away. But to see them just go all in on this particular issue with everything else going on in the country. It shows you how craven and gross these Republican Party ghouls are. Donald Trump just launched Truth Social, his answer to Twitter. And when I say answer to Twitter, I mean, it's basically a Twitter clone, except it doesn't work properly and you have to get on a waiting list to actually join the website. Well, there was a lot of hype around this particular app because Donald Trump can finally tweet again, except it's already crashing and burning and not many people are using the app, including Donald Trump himself. So as Meredith McGraw and Rebecca Kern of Politico explain, at the Conservative Political Action Conference in Florida, speculation of a 2024 presidential bid by former President Donald Trump loomed large, but fanfare about his Truth Social app that had launched earlier that week? There was hardly any. Trump mentioned the app in passing only a few times on stage. People including Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene name-dropped Truth Social, but there was barely any buzz at the conference about the app. Other than Trump, what makes a platform 
compelling enough to come back over and over again. How is it any different than Twitter and Parler, said one Republican digital strategist who spoke on the condition of anonymity to speak candidly about different conservative apps. After Twitter permanently suspended Trump, the self-proclaimed Ernest Hemingway of 140 characters vowed to turn the social media world upside down with a platform of his own, but well more than a year later, his platform has failed to prove it's ready to cause the kind of disruption he imagined. Worse, there's not much public enthusiasm around the current venture. Top figures in Trump world are barely using the app, some give the verbal equivalent of a shrug when asked about it, and Trump himself has only posted one quote truth. And therein lies the problem. Trump himself doesn't even believe in the app, but even if he was really active on this app and he used it really frequently, what's the point of a social media application that revolves around one person? How is that fun? And furthermore, that kind of defeats the purpose of social media if you're just existing in an echo chamber because conservatives, they log on and then what? They circle jerk about Trump being good. I just don't get how this is fun. And when you think about the way that uh, websites like Facebook algorithmically keep people engaged on these platforms while well, they try to put people against each other, try to show people more uh, content that will make them angry or more willing to fight with other people. So when you don't have any of that, you really have no reason to return, uh, to return no, uh, no ways of keeping people engaged. It's just Trump is awesome. Yeah, let's circle jerk about Trump. That's great and all. And perhaps, you know, there was some legitimate enthusiasm at the beginning, but that's going to get boring. And the bigger issue here is Truth Social's lack of originality. It looks exactly like Twitter. Embarrassingly so. Look at these screenshots. It's laid out just like Twitter. The verified symbol looks just like Twitter's. Tweets are called truths here. It's utterly shameless. So the question is, when given the choice between... Truth Social, a Twitter clone that doesn't work properly and forces you to get on a waiting list to use the app, or just using Twitter where people are, which would you use? People are already answering that question. But more from Politico here. Approximately 313,000 people follow Trump on Truth Social, just a fraction of the more than 85 million who once followed him on Twitter. That could be due in part to a waiting list to get onto the site that is still hundreds of thousands of people long, but many major players in the conservative world also aren't on the app. There are no verified accounts for Trump's former advisors, Steve Bannon and Rudy Giuliani, although unverified accounts exist, based on a search Tuesday. While top conservative talk show host Dan Bongino has an account Glenn Beck and Tucker Carlson did not appear in the search, and the app itself has been tripped up with technical difficulties from the moment it launched for a limited number of users on February 20th. For being a social media platform, there is little social interaction among users, say some of the individuals who have joined from waitlists. This raises questions about its ability to compete with major Silicon Valley platforms, even if it can garner the user base. The rocky start has raised questions about Truth Social's viability, especially as it joins other conservative-leaning social media platforms including Getter, Parler, Gab, and video streaming site Rumble, all of which are trying to draw Trump supporters with promises of less content moderation. Fair point. Now, what's interesting is that this, in a way, is conservatives inadvertently telling us that they don't actually believe the bullshit that they're espousing about the censorship that they're seeing on social media platforms. If you look at the daily top tens on Facebook, it's all conservative content. 
Ben Shapiro, number one. The Daily Wire, number two. The Daily Wire, number three. Ben Shapiro, number four. Dan Bongino, number five. I mean, it's nothing but conservatives. So they know that they already dominate these platforms. So why would they go to a different platform with smaller user bases and they're going to reach less people? They're speaking specifically or exclusively, I should say, to people who already agree with them. I mean, you want to broaden your reach, right? You want to perhaps penetrate normie circles online. So why would you just go to far right echo chambers? It's just a bad business model. If you already are a social media star like Ben Shapiro, for example, who trends on uh, Facebook daily, and it's just boring. Who wants to use this? Who wants to go to this website and just talk to other Trump supporters? You're just going to repost flag emojis. I just don't get the point. And I'll tell you how boring this site is. So I originally had attended on making an account so I can troll, but I forgot about it. And then I just decided, eh, what's the point? Because why even troll a website when there's nobody there to troll? So when you can't even create a website that lures in trolls at a minimum, you know that you've got a failed product. So it's already crashing and burning after less than two weeks, I believe, of it launching. And it's sad, but it speaks to Trump's waning star power. I mean, look, I won't deny the fact that in the event the GOP primary were held today for the 2024 presidential election, he would dominate that. But little by little, he is losing his influence more that he is out of the public eye. And that's good. Hopefully his cult will just move on but it's hard to say either way um i take pure joy out of this story because i think it's just funny that this website is crashing and burning already you know he got banned from twitter so his response was okay fine i'll make my own and then within weeks it's already doa so again this is kind of just like it's it's beta period apparently they haven't officially launched perhaps that's damage control either way um you know truth social is already a failure and you love to see it Sorry, but it's true. I think this is funny. Variety magazine featured the Kardashian family on the cover of the latest issue, and they also interviewed the family. And in one particular portion of the interview, something that Kim Kardashian said ruffled a few feathers, to say the least. And for good reason, because her comments here are going to come off as incredibly elitist and classist. So this is pure rage fuel. You've been warned. Nonetheless, let's watch. I have the best advice for women in business. Get your fucking ass up and work. It seems like nobody wants to work these days. You That's have to, so true. You have to surround yeah. yourself with people that want to work. Have a good work environment where everyone loves what they do because you have one life. No toxic work environments and show up and do the work. I hate her so much. I swear to God, she is so insufferable. This entire family is so goddamn insufferable. I can't really find the words to express the level of hate that I feel for this entire fucking family. The Kardashians, the Jenners, all of them. I fucking hate them so much. So she says, um, it seems like nobody wants to work these days. And her sister chimed in saying, that's so true. Oh my God. Shut the fuck up, you elitist pricks holy shit imagine having millions and millions of dollars and complaining about how the peasants don't want to work maybe it's the case that it's not necessarily that they don't want to work per se but they don't want to work for an employer who underpays them and treats them like shit maybe they'd have smiles on their faces when they went into their job every single day if they weren't struggling to get by if they actually could purchase things that make them happy but when you can barely pay the fucking bills and your employer treats you like dog shit, 
where's the motivation? You expect people to just fight past that abuse and just put a smile on their face? What what are what are you even expecting here? My last job before I was doing the humanist report full time was Walmart. I worked at Walmart for $10 an hour with a bachelor's degree while I was trying to get my master's degree. And I've got to say, wasn't necessarily very enthusiastic about going to work every single day. One, because it sucked. Uh, and two, because I could barely make enough money to survive. And the same was true for all of my coworkers. I mean, when you have to work, dedicate the majority of your days to a job where you're miserable there, you're treated like a robot and you don't even make enough money to make the shitty abuse that you deal with worthwhile. It's just to say that people don't wanna work, shut the fuck up. And she says here, have a good work environment. This is her advice to working women. Have a good working work environment where everyone loves what they do because you have one life, no toxic work environments and show up and do the work as if people have a choice. You know, if you're working in a toxic work environment, just find a new job where the environment is not toxic. I think that people, if they had the opportunity to do this, Kim, they would do that. But people don't have money saved because jobs pay dog shit and they have to deal with the job that they work with because finding a job that actually pays you well and treats you well is actually difficult in our late stage capitalist hellscape. So what are you even talking about? Has she had a single conversation with somebody who's not a millionaire? It's insane to me. And perhaps this view that she has is shaped by her perspective because she has a lot of employees for her Kardashian empire. So when she sees her employees, she probably thinks, wow, look at all of these people. How are they not happy making me filthy fucking rich? Why don't they have big smiles on their faces? Well, I'll tell you why, Kim. It's because you treated your workers like shit. Quote, I was an editor on the Kardashian apps in 2015 in LA. Worked days, nights, and weekends. Could only afford groceries from the 99 cent only store. Called out sick more than once because I couldn't put gas in my car to get to the office and was reprimanded for freelancing on the side. So her employees are underpaid, treated like shit, they get reprimanded for getting side gigs because their main job doesn't pay enough. And she probably sees this and this is kind of what colors her worldview. She just thinks, wow, these people are miserable probably because they're lazy. It couldn't possibly be that I treat them like shit and pay them nothing. No, it's because they're lazy. These peasants are lazy and they should have a big smile on their face when they make me millions and millions of dollars. I mean, to say that she lacks self-awareness would be an understatement. She is completely fucking clueless. This is someone, though, let me remind you, who during the first year of the pandemic bragged about renting an entire private island for her 40th birthday. She wrote on Twitter in October of 2020, after two weeks of multiple health screens and asking everyone to quarantine, I surprised my closest inner circle with a trip to a private island where we could pretend things were normal just for a brief moment in time. How lovely. We danced, rode bikes, swam near whales, kayaked, watched a movie on the beach, and so much more. I realized that for most people, this is something that is so far out of reach right now. So in moments like these, I am humbly reminded of how privileged my life is. Oh, do you, Kim? You realize how privileged you are, really. So um, you wouldn't think that posting about how you rented an entire fucking island just for your birthday maybe makes the peasants feel like shit because they will never have that. And during the first year of COVID, before vaccines were available, when we couldn't see our families, we had to social distance and quarantine, you didn't think 
how throwing this in people's faces, flaunting your wealth would make them feel worse. I mean, how insufferable, what a fucking elitist pig. It's almost unbelievable here. Well, I know that so many people just can't do this right now, so I acknowledge that I'm privileged, but I'm still gonna post about it and flaunt my wealth. Hope you don't feel like shit, sorry. I know that for your 40th birthday, you're probably gonna get drunk and watch uh, reruns of The Office on, on Paramount Plus or whatever the fuck The Office is on, but this is what I do for my birthday. I rent an entire fucking island, get everyone in my inner circle tested for COVID-19, and um, yeah. <laughs> How could you not hate her? She is a piece of shit. If you are a simp for Kim Kardashian, acknowledge that she thinks that you are inferior to her. She thinks that her shit doesn't stink, but guess what? She's not better than anyone else. She's not better than the peasants who she's criticizing. Her shit does stink, contrary to popular belief, and she farts just like everyone. She's a normal human being. She just thinks she's better than you because she has a lot of money. Now, I usually don't take much stock into what the ladies on The View say, but they actually had a really meaningful conversation about her comments here. And sometimes people on The View, the hosts on The View in particular, you know, they get a little bit elitist. Sometimes they come off as out of touch with working Americans, but Sonny Hostin here made a fantastic point that's worth sharing. Take a look. It helps to be born rich also. Like it she helps. was. I mean, she had a wealthy father. She had a mother who was a business manager. She's pretty. She's, that helps. She's pretty. Mother asked that. Um, and I, I just think that people that are born on third base shouldn't be talking about how easy it is to hit a home run. Yeah, right. Uh, exactly. When you are born into wealth, I don't want to hear anything about how other people don't want to work because they have to work twice as hard as you and they will never even feel a fraction of the wealth that you get for doing nothing. Smiling for a camera. How difficult acting for a reality tv show i mean the work that she does is nothing compared to the normal working american and yet they can't pay the bills and she has so much wealth she will never be able to spend it in a single lifetime if kim kardashian is able to live to be ten thousand years old she still wouldn't be able to spend all of the money that she has even if she tried hard because after you buy a mansion and a yacht and you you know, take care of all of your family, buy them mansions and yachts and luxury vehicles. Then you still have millions and millions and millions of dollars left. So her comments here demonstrate that she's not just out of touch and lacks self-awareness, but it really gives us some insight into how American elites think of the peasants. She thinks that you're lazy. This is what she thinks about you. She thinks that you're not wealthy like her because you're just not working hard enough. Maybe if you go into Walmart with a smile on your face or you fucking you know, deliver those Amazon packages a little bit more happier, a little bit faster, you'd be as wealthy as her. She thinks it's you. It's not that you're being exploited by this disgusting late-stage capitalist system that we live in. No, it's you. You're the problem. This is classism right here, and it's gross, and um, she should feel ashamed of, of herself, but, you know, she has no shame and whatever sense of shame or guilt she feels after reflecting upon this comment assuming she even does that she'll make herself feel better by spending lots of money on like i don't know a purse or some shit i hate her so much and i, I hope that other people understand uh that hating kim kardashian is good especially after these comments this family should be canceled unequivocally stop giving them money stop buying their products if they make products stop watching their television shows this is a piece of shit 
Fuck her and her entire family. You're the one who's lazy, Kim, not working class Americans. Fuck off. Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, was asked about whether or not Putin's ambitions extended beyond Ukraine, and his answer was almost shockingly stupid and deceitful. So Newsweek explains, Russian foreign minister Sergei Lavrov has said Russia has no intention of attacking other countries after talks with Ukrainian foreign minister Dmitry Kuleba reportedly made no progress on Thursday. Quote, we are not planning to attack other countries, Lavrov said during remarks delivered in Russian in Antalya, Turkey. We didn't attack Ukraine in the first place, the Russian foreign minister said. We just explained a lot of times that the situation has come, that there was a direct threat to the safety and security of the Russian Federation. Uh-huh. Sure. The thing that Russia is currently doing in Ukraine, which is definitely not an attack or an invasion, is purely defensive in measure. This is what every single imperialist invader will say. It'll always be the justification for their imperialist expansionist vision. Oh, well, we had to do this because it was defensive. Nobody believes you. Nobody believes you. And what's interesting is that while he says that we should not believe our lying eyes, Russia is actually intensifying attacks on civilians in Ukraine. As Brett Wilkins of Common Dreams explains, amid new reports Thursday of non-combatants killed and wounded by Russian attacks on Ukrainian civilian infrastructure, human rights advocates joined United Nations officials in expressing their horror and accusing Russia of possible war crimes. BBC reports three people, including a child, were killed and 17 others were injured Wednesday in a Russian airstrike on a maternity and children's hospital in the besieged southern port city of Maripol, with patients and staff trapped beneath the rubble caused by the attack. We don't understand how it's possible in modern life to bomb a children's hospital, Maripol Deputy Mayor Serhi Orlov told the BBC. People cannot believe that it's true. United Nations Children's Fund Executive Director Catherine Russell said she was horrified by the attack, which, if confirmed, underscores the horrific toll this war is exacting on Ukraine's children and families. In less than two weeks, at least 37 children have been killed and 50 injured, she continued. While more than 1 million children have fled Ukraine to neighboring countries. Now, I want to stress that that report has not been confirmed when it comes to reporting on wars. You really have to take everything that you hear with a grain of salt. Uh, but if you want just an approximation as to how bloody this war has been, well, the UN has some preliminary numbers and it's just jaw-dropping. So far, there's been more than 1,400 civilian casualties in the country, 516 killed and 908 injured. These included 98 men, 60 women, 9 boys, and 5 girls, as well as 23 children and 321 adults whose sex is yet unknown, 908 injured, 78 men, 57 women, 12 girls, and 4 boys, as well as 34 children and 723 adults whose sex is yet unknown. So over a thousand civilian casualties and that number will likely grow. And again, this number is an approximation, but just know that it's bloody. That's the takeaway. This is a very bloody war as all wars are. And as Russia seemingly is getting more desperate, they're ramping up their attacks and now they're doing war crimes potentially. So the foreign minister of Russia, Sergei Lavrov is saying, we didn't attack Ukraine. What we're doing isn't a war or an invasion. It's a special military operation. You know, they'll, they'll coat their militarism and imperialism in Orwellian terms, but we know what this is. We see it for what it is. You can't lie to people 
in this era where everyone has a smartphone, everyone has a camera on them, we can see the war now in high definition. So you can't gaslight us anymore. We see what's happening. This is an invasion. It's an act of aggression. It's an illegal war. And if it's proven that these are indeed war crimes being committed deliberately by the Russian government, then people need to be held accountable. I condemn US imperialism and I absolutely damn sure condemn Russian imperialism as well, especially as I see these reports pouring in about civilian casualties and them targeting civilian infrastructure. It's just, it's grotesque and unimaginable. And I, I really feel so bad for the people of Ukraine. Um, so, you know, this is what we're seeing currently. I'm sure there's gonna be more reports. I hope that this war ends soon. I'm not necessarily that optimistic given how we keep seeing reports about talks failing, but still uh, I'm holding out some hope that this will end soon. But this comes down to Vladimir Putin. The onus is on him. He's the person who can choose to end this all right now. He can stop the blood, uh, the bloodshed and the suffering like that, but he's choosing not to. So the blood is on his hands. And the scary part is that he doesn't care. The word hypocritical in and of itself just doesn't sufficiently capture how craven and shameless Republicans are in their hypocritical behavior. It's just, it's not enough because they're just so in your face and brazen about their hypocrisy. Take Marjorie Taylor Greene, for example. So on February 23rd, she took to Twitter to denounce war profiteering. Now, I also agree that war profiteering is bad. It's just the messenger here is the problem. So she writes, war and rumors of war is incredibly profitable and convenient. And just like that, the media now has a lie to use as the reason for our shattered economy and out of control inflation. What a sad existence it must be to shill for globalism and America last politicians. Now I agree, war profiteering is bad. Any sort of disaster capitalism is bad, but this is a consequence of our late stage capitalist system. I mean, every single aspect of human life has been commodified. If there's some way to make money or extract value out of something that hasn't yet been commodified, capitalists will find a way to do that. Even democracy itself has been commodified, where you can't win an election unless you raise lots and lots of money. So I get why people don't like this, right? But if you are a self-proclaimed capitalist and a proud capitalist at that, I mean, this is the inevitable result of the system that you shill for. She's not proposing any systemic changes or fundamental changes to our capitalist system at all. She's vehemently against any other forms of economic systems that wouldn't lead to this, but yet she's denouncing it. So that isn't the only ironic thing about what she's saying here, because the irony goes much deeper, because after she claimed it's sad to shill for, quote, globalism, well, as Dara Roche of Newsweek explains, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene purchased stock in a major defense contractor just one day before sending a tweet that appeared to criticize profiting from war. Wow. A financial disclosure released on Monday shows that Greene, a Republican representing Georgia's 14th Congressional District, purchased between $1,000 and $15,000 in Lockheed Martin stock on February 22, 2022. Greene tweeted the next day, criticizing 
criticizing the media and taking an apparent swipe at war profiteering, while she also took aim at the role of defense contractors in a series of tweets on February 24th, the day Russia began its invasion of Ukraine. Lockheed Martin manufactures Javelin anti-tank missiles with defense contractor Raytheon. Those missiles have been included in Western military aid to Ukraine. The U.S. and NATO have sent more than 17,000 anti-tank weapons to Ukraine, including Javelins, according to the New York Times. So she has the audacity to buy stock in Lockheed Martin and then a day later publicly condemn war profiteering. This woman has no shame whatsoever. <laughs> I'm almost speechless. First and foremost, let me just say that members of Congress should not be allowed to buy stocks. In fact, Ilhan Omar responded to this story with that very same sentiment, saying via Twitter, add this to the list of reasons why members of Congress should never be allowed to trade stocks. I think that most reasonable people can agree with that because they have information that the rest of Americans aren't privy to, so it gives them an advantage, an unfair advantage in the stock market. So that's that's thing number one. But thing number two is that you can't you can't just be this hypocritical. You can't just say war profiteering bad after you bought stocks in Lockheed Martin. Who does that? It's insane to me. It's so insane to me. I just what do you even say? What do you even say? Now, the question is, what is her excuse? Because this story blew up online, and of course, people were asking questions. Hey, you denounce war profiteering, but yet you're profiting from wars, so why? Explain. And her answer was to uh, basically play dumb. Um, well, I didn't do this. My broker did it. Excuse me? No, no, no. You don't get to use that excuse. So here's what she said specifically. Green told Business Insider in a statement on Monday, our investment advisor has full discretionary authority over our accounts. We have owned this American company for years, and this small investment was part of our overall investment strategy. This was purchased along with other companies like Clorox, Walgreens, and Caterpillar, to name a few, she said. Oh, okay. Still doesn't count. You don't get a pass for that. Why can't you tell your broker, listen, I have a moral aversion to war profiteering. Therefore, I don't want to purchase stocks in defense contractors. You can't just say that. I mean, what a pathetic excuse for a human being. I, I mean, she's just, she's so shameless. She's so hypocritical. I don't buy that she has no control over her stock. Sure, she probably outsources this duty to her broker, but still, you can lay out parameters as to what you do and don't want to invest in. You are choosing where to place your money, and you very much are putting your money in the hands of war profiteers. So if you're going to do that, at least shut up about war profiteering, but she can't help herself. She can't help herself. I just, I don't know what to say. This is the dumbest member of Congress, and she is hypocritical to a point where it's not surprising. It's almost a feature of the modern-day Republican Party. They contradict themselves uh, constantly. They are overtly hypocritical. They're just not serious people, and I don't know who can take them seriously. You have to not be a serious person yourself if you take these clowns seriously. What a fucking joke. Holy shit. So I know that lately the news cycle has been incredibly depressing, um, but I saw something that put 
a big dumb smile on my face. And I thought that I would share this with you because I think that you also will find it as entertaining as I did. So without further ado, here is a video of somebody yelling, Ted Cruz sucks at Ted Cruz. Take a look. You look at the origins uh, of the pandemic. The virus, God bless you. <laughs> the virus, the evidence is overwhelming. I think escaped from a Chinese government lab in Wuhan, China. Love it. Just, it warms my heart so much. That person who yelled that is an American hero. That person is a true patriot. So if you're watching this, sir, I hope that you know that we appreciate you. We value your service. Now, uh, we are going to take a look at it one more time. This time when you watch it, pay close attention to the guy on the right. He's on Ted Cruz's left uh, because his reaction is, is hilarious. God bless you. <laughs> the virus, the evidence is overwhelming. I think escaped from... Love it. Love it. He knows he's standing next to somebody who sucks and he's laughing. Now, this video got me thinking. So in the event I were in public, would I also yell something at Ted Cruz? And I've thought long and hard about this, actually, and I have concluded the answer is absolutely. I think that in the moment, if I saw him in public, the adrenaline would kick in and I'd feel the need to do something. And of course, I wouldn't walk up to him and hawk a loogie in his face or something. That's what he deserves. But I wouldn't do that. But I would yell something. The question is, what would I yell? And that is a little bit more difficult because you don't want to yell something stupid at him. Like you want to get the point across very clearly that he is stupid and dumb and he does very much indeed suck. But what do you say? And I think that just saying Ted Cruz sucks, that is, it does the trick, right? But I would want to do something more mean, in my opinion. So would I say, go fuck yourself, Ted Cruz? Would I tell him to eat a dick? I'm not sure. And that's the thing that really has me a little bit, uh, I guess, perplexed by this. I want to yell at Ted Cruz if I ever saw him in public, which I would not. Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't get the chance to do that. But if I did... What would I yell? And that's really what has me tripped up. And I don't know what I would yell. I, I think I'd probably just yell, fuck you, Ted Cruz, or something. But I'd want it to be more impactful and much more mean. Like, you want it to pack a punch. So what do you say? So I am going to outsource this question to you all because I know after watching this video, you're thinking about this too. What would you yell at Ted Cruz in the event you saw him in public? It's, it's a tough question because there's so many options. I mean, you could critique him for eating a booger on national television in 2016. You can criticize him for being smarmy and fake. You can call him a sellout. Um, you can call him a beta male because Donald Trump called his wife ugly. There's so much, but you'd only have a fraction of a second to get the point across. So what would you say? And honestly, as I think through and as I have been thinking through what I would say, I felt something that I haven't felt in a while, and that is happiness. So I, you know, I initially kind of hesitated to talk about this because it's not substantive, but when the news cycle is so dark and when I genuinely feel depressed and bogged down by everything that's happening in the world and in the United States, we need to celebrate moments like this, moments where we all feel just genuine happiness from. And I think that everyone in America can agree that Ted Cruz is one of the biggest pieces of shits in the country. So seeing somebody yell at him, it just, dare I say it's wholesome even. <laughs> so um, yeah, I don't know what I would yell at him. I, I, I think that in the event, you know, I, I were in the moment, I just say fuck you to him 
but it have to be better than that. I just feel like that wouldn't suffice. It have to be much better. So let me know what um what you would say to him, what you would yell at him, and I hope that this video put a smile on your face as much as it did mine because this certainly brightened up my day. That's where we're at, where we're trying to extract joy from videos where people yell at Ted Cruz. But hey, when you're living in a late-stage capitalist dystopian hellscape, it's the little things that count, and this certainly counted. Thank you so much to that person who yelled this at Ted Cruz. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.